Principles of Economics, my complete guide to understanding economics, is now available in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook from safeddean.com, Amazon, and many more booksellers worldwide. And now, I am also teaching a course based on this book on my website, safeddean.com. Principles of Economics will run the whole academic year, from September to June, and will have a new lecture every two weeks, as well as weekly live online discussion seminars open to learners from all over the world and from all walks of life. Whether you're a student, a professional, or a retiree, you are making economic decisions every day, and this course will arm you with the wisdom of centuries of economists to improve your economic decision-making. You'll also get a free book of Principles of Economics if you sign up for the course. Go to safeddean.com and sign up now. The Bitcoin Standard Podcast is brought to you by Orange Pill App, the Bitcoin-only social network that connects you with high-signal Bitcoiners, events, and now merchants as well. If you're like me and can't stop talking about Bitcoin, you know how challenging it can be to talk to the no-coiners and how nice it is to talk to someone who gets you. With the Orange Pill app, you can find the Bitcoiners near you and they can replace the no-coiners in your life. You can organize events and meetups with local Bitcoiners and wherever you travel, you can meet up with local Bitcoiners all while being as anonymous as you like. So if you want to build your local network of Bitcoiners, find a Bitcoin meetup or merchants accepting Bitcoin, head over to orangepillapp.com to sign up or download the app from the App Store or Google Play Store and send me a DM so we can get connected. The Bitcoin Standard Podcast is brought to you by CoinKite. CoinKite are my favorite makers of Bitcoin hardware. They produce the legendary Open Dime, the first Bitcoin bearer asset, as well as the reliable cold card hardware wallet, the excellent stainless steel seed plates for storing your seed phrases, and the block clock. Now, CoinKite have produced the SATS card, a card the size of a credit card which can store Bitcoin and works great as a gift. CoinKite have just produced a limited edition gorgeous Bitcoin Standard SATS card, which carries the Bitcoin Standard logo, and you can get it from coinkite.shop slash Bitcoin Standard. Use the code Bitcoin Standard to get 5% off your purchase. This podcast is also brought to you by the Bitcoin Way, your professional Bitcoin IT team offering you personalized, secure, and comprehensive solutions for every step along your Bitcoin journey. The Bitcoin Way offer live concierge service to guide you with your Bitcoin cold storage, running your node, privacy best practices, inheritance planning, corporate strategy, and multi-sig solutions. They don't touch your coins, they guide you through the process of acquiring your coins and securing them. If you'd like to make your setup safer and more reliable, book a consult with them and see what they have to suggest. If you want to give someone the gift of Bitcoin, get them this professional service that will ensure they start off knowing exactly how to manage their coins and not lose them. Go to thebitcoinway.com and start Bitcoining more confidently. Hey everybody, Tom Woods here. I'm so happy to have our old friend Saifedean Amos back with us today. He's, of course, the author of the internationally renowned book, The Bitcoin Standard, as well as the follow-up, The Fiat Standard. We've talked about both those books. He's an independent scholar, but he's got credentials as long as my arm. And he's produced the fruit of four years of labor, which, as we know from reading his book, has nothing to do with how highly valued it is. And it's called Principles of Economics. And I am going to tell you, Safe, that there are a number of books that are kind of introductory works to get people knowledgeable about the Austrian school of economics or about economics in general. But they're either too elementary or, I don't know, they leave something to be desired. I am not saying this just because you're here. This is going to be the book I recommend to people from now on when they say, I want to know some economics or I want to understand the Austrian school. What are you people talking about? Without a doubt, no hesitation whatsoever. It's going to be your book. No hesitation whatsoever. This is an absolute masterpiece. And so my first comment to you is a comment only and not a question. Just congratulations. Wow. Thank you so much, Tom. This means a lot coming from you. I spent a lot of time thinking about how people like you would like this book. And it's a huge relief to hear that you like it. Thank you so much. It means a lot. Well, it's written for the intelligent layman in a way that never talks down to him and is written at exactly the right level. So it's not a whole lot of jargon either that only economists would know. It's just the right level. It's perfect for what it seeks to be, which is a principles book. So let's dig in. Now, obviously, when you're talking about a book like this, 
that is systematically presenting the field of economics. It's a little different to do a podcast interview about it. I don't really think it's possible or even desirable to try to reconstruct every building block of economics with you. Instead, what I've done is I just picked out some topics that I think are important or where you take, let's say, a controversial position, which is like every other page, but even a controversial position maybe within the Austrian school, and talk this through a little bit. But before we do that, let's start with, you say in the book that this is an unapologetically Austrian overview of economics. So if you have a one-minute elevator pitch to give about Austrian economics, how would you describe its distinguishing features? I guess the most important thing is that it is not government propaganda. That's the most distinguishing feature. And then that leads to the fact that it approaches economic phenomena with the intent to understand them, whereas government propaganda economics approaches them from the perspective of, we need to answer questions for policymakers about how to manage the economy best. So this is not policy-oriented. It doesn't attack the questions of economics from a policy-oriented framework. You may arrive at policy conclusions, but it is a scholarly study of the phenomena of economics and the things that people decide and how people act. And then, of course, the primary way in which Austrians do that is that they look at human action. They look at how human beings act and how their actions cause economic phenomena to take different shape and what are the implications of these actions, which is the fundamental difference with mainstream economics because mainstream economics posits all kinds of forces that can be measured through aggregate statistics, which they then conclude will um, result in helping us understand economics by analyzing how these aggregates are related to one another, which we can do in the same way that physicists look at physical metrics. So weight, mass, pressure, volume, speed, you can look at all of those things and you can establish scientific relationships between them. And quack economics, as I like to call it, mainstream economics, attempts to just copy that into studying economic action. And of course, fails miserably because the building blocks of economics, the things that create economic phenomena are humans acting and not atoms, not physical things that are responding predictably to stimuli. Human beings are far more complex than things because they have a will of their own and they have a mind of their own and you can't model their action and their will and their reactions in the same way that you model physical characteristics. So do you take a position on the issue of the proper method of economics? Because there is even some disagreement about this within the Austrian school itself. While writing the book, I tried to kind of avoid discussing methodology and academic debates too much. And I wanted to just get to the meat of the matter. I wanted to get to how do I explain the concept of capital? What is capital? Why is it important for somebody living in the world today to have a good understanding of capital and how it works? What are capital markets? What is economic calculation? All of these really important concepts that are in Austrian economics, they're quite difficult to explain simply. And for me, the motivation was, how do I get this idea across? And to do that, I've had 10 years of experience as a university professor communicating different ideas in economics. And I think getting into these debates about what is the correct methodology and how to approach it can be off-putting. In fact, one thing, I don't know if you noticed this, but I think of the entire book, I barely ever use the word praxeology. The book is praxeology. It follows praxeological method. But from my experience, I just always found that every time I use that word in class, the students just lose track of what I'm trying to communicate. Immediately, they get this idea that this sounds weird, praxeology. What is he trying to sell us? Is this some kind of cult? Is he trying to get us to join something? It's just a word that's not intuitive. So the hard thing about writing sometimes is to try and simplify things. I think it was, I'm not sure if it's Oscar Wilde or Mark Twain, or one of these authors who once said, I would have written you a shorter letter, but I didn't have time. It's difficult. Yeah, I, I heard that Plato said that. So I don't know where that came from, but whoever said it was onto something. Absolutely. It's easier to rant. Anybody can just hit their fingers on the keyboard and make thousands of words. It's very difficult to get your point across in a few words or in a few pages. So with all of those things, the motivation was to use the Austrian method, thinking about it through human action, trying to start with a framework that is praxeological in the sense that somebody does X 
acts and then what happens when they act in that way? What happens when Robinson Crusoe decides that he's not going to spend all of his time today catching rabbits? Instead, he's going to spend some time building a spear. Well, now he develops a spear and now he has a capital good. So I try not to get bogged down too much in the methodology and focus mostly on communicating these ideas. And to do that, I just went with the written word primarily. I think like in Rothbard's Man Economy and State, he does use quite a bit of mathematics and formulas and equations to try and express things. And I honestly found that to be a little bit tedious as well as kind of tangential because it is, in a sense, he's trying to talk to the mainstream to try and get the mainstream to acknowledge him, which my motivation for writing this book was that after I wrote the Bitcoin Standard, I developed my own readership. I have people who like to read my work and I can write for them. I don't need to get the acceptance of academics. I don't right. need to care about whether academics like my book. In this regard, you know, you've been an inspiration of this. You don't care about what academic journals say about your books. Nope. And that's extremely liberating because, you know, <laughs> yeah. you want to write for actual human beings and not for committees of academics. That's right. Let's go to a very specific topic in your book because contained within it is so much important economics. And that's a topic that maybe people have heard a bunch of times, but I think there's more to be mined from it. And that is the debate between Julian Simon and Paul Ehrlich about commodities. Yeah. So can you set the stage there? Because you could understand why, now Paul Ehrlich has no excuse, but you could understand why an uneducated layman, let's say, or a layman whose specialty is in some other field, could have believed what Ehrlich said about various commodities growing scarcer and their prices in real terms going up because you would think, well, sure, over time, their supplies will be depleted. And so this is a natural consequence of that. I could understand why the average person would think that. But can you just set the stage? What was that all about? And why was Ehrlich so wrong? The syllabus for my new online economics course, Principles of Economics, is now available on safedean.com. The course will take place over 18 lectures, each based on one chapter from my new book, Principles of Economics, which will be available for free as an ebook for everyone registering for the course. Lectures will be released once every two weeks on Mondays, starting on the 25th of September, 2023, and will be available in video and audio format. Live discussion seminars will be held once a week on Thursdays at alternating time slots, 12 hours apart, to ensure learners can attend from all over the world. I'm happy to announce that I have set up my new publishing house and online bookstore, The Safe House, which will be publishing and delivering the best Bitcoin and Austrian economics books worldwide in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook formats. Go to thesafehouse.com to buy my latest book, Principles of Economics, as well as the Fiat Standard and the Bitcoin Standard. And now I'm also publishing Fiat Food, Matthew Lishak's amazing investigation into how inflation ruined our diet and health. And I'm also publishing Lynn Alden's Broken Money, her masterful exploration of the failures of the global financial system and how Bitcoin fixes it. This is a Bitcoiner's bookshop, so the books are printed in beautiful cloth hardcover made to last with an ice-colored dust jacket on top. Go to thesafehouse.com and get yours now. Yeah, I think this is really a very important thing. And I think this is the one thing that I get from relatively non-Austrian economists. I don't think Julian Simon would have considered himself an Austrian. Would you agree? Maybe a fellow traveler, but I, I don't see anything specifically Austrian about his work. Yeah, I haven't seen him identify as an Austrian. I think his methodology isn't really very Austrian, but it is something that I believe fits so well with the rest of the Austrian canon that I added it as one of the early chapters. So the first three chapters of the book are sort of part one is called fundamentals. And that's the first three chapters. And the first one explains human action. The second one explains value and the concept of value from a Mangarian perspective. So the first one is really Mises. The second one is Menger. And then the third one is Julian Simon, which is may stick out as odd for Austrians because he's not an Austrian. But I believe his framework for thinking about scarcity as really being ultimately the scarcity of human time fits in very nicely with the rest of the Austrian canon. I mean, it doesn't really change much of the conclusions of Austrians. It's not like it contradicts 
Mises or Rothbard, but I think it frames their work in a much nicer way. And the key idea here, which you explained in his book, The Ultimate Resource, is that we can make more of anything we want as long as we dedicate more time to it. Therefore, the meaningful restraint, the meaningful constraint, I should say, the meaningful constraint on how much we have of any single thing on earth is just how much time we dedicate to it. And if we're willing to forego other things in exchange for more of this thing, we'll have more of it. So if you wanted more gold, gold is the scarcest thing in the crust of the earth. But every year we find more gold than the last year. There's more gold being produced this year than last year, than the year before and the year before. I mean, sometimes maybe it drops a little bit, but overall the trend is constantly increasing. We're always finding more gold because we're always digging for more gold. We're always developing more advanced technology for producing more gold. And so if we were to have a gigantic increase in the demand for gold, then we can dedicate more resources. We can take resources away from other goods, from the production of other goods, and dedicate it toward the production of more gold, and we'd have more gold. And the same is true for pretty much everything. And this, of course, in the 1970s was completely ridiculous for somebody like him to say that. And of course, I'm sure he got laughed at in all the universities where he was saying this stuff. Because in the 1970s, remember, there was inflation. And so the price of everything was going up. And so the ideas of we're running out of resources. These ideas were very, very popular at that time. So everybody thought, you know, the price of everything is going up. Clearly, that can't have anything to do with our benevolent, all-knowing central planners who are printing increasing quantities of money and generating endless credit. Obviously, they know what they're doing. Clearly, the earth has just run out of things. The reason the price of nickel and copper and all of those things gone up at the same time Somehow, you're supposed to believe that all of these things suddenly became more expensive because they all became more scarce, not because the money which you're measuring the price of those things has gone up. And of course, this is now becoming harder and harder for people to argue this because if you look at the price, here we are 50 years later, if you look at the price of commodities denominated in gold, then they haven't really been getting more expensive. If we'd stayed on a gold standard, things are still relatively stable. And in fact, if you measure them against human time, if we had a form of money that was even more scarce than gold, and of course, with gold, there's a problem that it is manipulated and central banks control the stock of it. So it's not exactly all that good of a measure. Arguably, if we had a better form of money that wasn't manipulated by central banks, then we'd have prices of everything drop. And in fact, if you measure them in terms of human time, which is what Julian Simon suggests, If you look at how many hours you need to work to obtain a particular good, you see that over time, the prices of all those things continue to drop. 40 years ago, the average worker had to work for, say, this many hours to obtain a bushel of corn. Today, he needs to work a quarter of that time, perhaps, to obtain the same bushel of corn. Even though, of course, the price of the bushel of corn has gone up maybe 10x in those 40 years, but it is still in terms of human time it is still becoming more and more abundant. And this is true for everything, for all commodities. And I show data from Gail Pooley and Marianne Tupi. They wrote a book called Superabundance. And in that book, they show how over the last 40 years, and specifically 1980 to 2020, basically they take 50 of the most common commodities and they show that they are practically a quarter as expensive as they were 40 years ago in terms of human time. So... The reason for that is that, as I mentioned earlier, we can just make more of all of those things if we just dedicate human time. So the really limiting factor, the real scarcity here is human time. And if we have an infinite amount of humans to dedicate toward producing more and more goods, we just keep making more and more because the limits of the earth are so far beyond what we can even measure, let alone extract, that it is not in any meaningful sense a limit. It's like thinking of you're drinking water from a river. You don't worry about the river running out from you drinking water because you could drink for all the rest of your life and you wouldn't even make any perceptible difference to the quantity of water in the river. So what matters ultimately is the scarcity of our human time. And thinking about economizing our human time is what ultimately matters the most. And that's, I think, a good way of framing all of the rest of the book, because essentially the way that I thought of presenting this was to begin with looking at the method of human action, 
economic value, and then the scarcity of time and the economizing of time. And then with that framework, move on to the second part of the book, which is economy or how humans economize. And that's all about the actions that humans take to increase the quantity and the quality of the time that they have on earth. That's what economics is. Because ultimately, yes, you're economizing resources, but why are you doing that? Why do you care about economizing the resources that you have? It's ultimately to increase the quality of time that you have, you know, provide yourself with subjectively valuable things and to increase the quantity of time, to increase your livelihood, to avoid early death, to try and live as long as you can. And so with that framework, we can then move on to what are the things that humans use to economize. And that's this part two of the book. So the first chapter of that, chapter four, discusses labor. That's the basic thing that we do. We work and so we can make our lives better. Then property, we start taking property. So I explain the concept of property. And then one specific form of property, which is my favorite kind of property, capital. That's chapter six. What is capital? Capital as property that is owned, not for its own sake, but for the sake of producing other property. And then chapter seven looks at technology and chapter seven looks at energy and power and how we direct energy and power toward our economizing decisions. So this I find to be a useful framework to begin to introduce economizing. And then these are what I call the individual economic acts. These are the things that you can do on your own if you're on an island. But then part three is the market order. Well, what happens now when you introduce other people and we can all economize together? And that's when the magic happens. So chapter nine discusses trade and how we trade, why we trade, what are the benefits of trade, the concept of absolute advantage, comparative advantage. And then chapter 10 introduces money, which is a way to supercharge the productivity of trade. And then chapter 11 introduces markets, the concept of markets and how markets function. And then chapter 12, the last chapter in this section is about capitalism and it introduces the concept of economic calculation, Mises' definition of capitalism. So I think that's a good way to build up the ideas of economics and introduce them one by one by framing it around that idea of economizing time. Well, I thought it was interesting that the Julian Simon and Paul Ehrlich thing was in the section on time, which is a, now that you've explained it, and of course you explain it in the book, it makes sense, but it's not where maybe the average reader would have expected it to be. And by the way, the Ehrlich side of that tried to claim that it was just bad luck, that it was just the years that were chosen and that them's the breaks. Maybe sometimes there is a flugy time when the prices go down, but they compared Simon's optimism that this was the natural order of things to somebody who jumps off a cliff in the confidence that somebody will develop a parachute while he's in the air. Hmm. No, that's ridiculous. I just realized now that I kind of avoided answering your question, which was about specifically the bet. So yeah, so in the 1970s, there were all kinds of, I'd like to use the word hysterics because it's a word that's growing in relevance and importance in our modern world. But back then in the 70s, the hysteria was that we're all going to run out of all the important things that we need. And so people like Paul Ehrlich were going on TV and publishing books and talking about how we only have three more years of nickel left and seven more years of oil and eight more years of fresh water or whatever. And that was basically considered just the end of the road for capitalism and human civilization. We milked the earth dry and anytime now, it's going to stop giving us its bounty and then we're all going to starve and die. And, or at least we're going to have to massively depopulate the earth, which is the kind of common theme. A lot of this Malthusian insane people. And so Simon just went and said, I'll bet you that you pick any five commodities and you pick, I think it was five years or was it 10 years? I forget, but the details are in the book. And so Simon said to Ehrlich, pick any five commodities, pick any over a time frame of five or 10 years. And I bet you the price of those commodities is going to be lower at the end of that period than it is at the beginning of that period. And indeed, that is exactly what happened. The five commodities that Ehrlich himself picked, which he thought would be the best choice for proving that we're running out of stuff, those commodities became cheaper at the time period in which Ehrlich said they would run out completely. So not only did we not run out, as the Malthusians would have expected, we had more of them. And the reason is, of course, because once we get more demand for those things, once demand increases, more people 
become rich enough to command more of those goods. More people want iron and nickel and copper and all of these goods for their electronics and their industrial applications and all kinds of different uses. Well, that just generates more demand and more demand generates more economic incentive for people who produce those things to make more and more of them. And so people who produce those things will indeed make more of them and bring more of them onto the market. And while investing in doing that, they invest in capital production. So they make more and more capital. And that capital leads to the decline in the cost of those things. So once we build more machines, initially the machines are expensive, but eventually their cost is paid off. And then we benefit from the fact that those machines give us cheaper and cheaper output of all the goods that we want. And so I think it was a comprehensive victory for Simon. And I think if you run this in the long run, the only way that you could run this bet in a way that Simon would lose it would be if you essentially massively understate the inflation that's taking place. And so that if you use bogus CPI statistics for inflation, then it might appear over a certain period of time, probably say 2003 to 2008, yeah, commodities went up, but well, commodities went up if you're comparing them to CPI, which is a bogus metric meant to make people think that there is no inflation. But then what happened in 2009 and 2010, and then what happened in 2020, the prices of all these commodities crashed back down. So of course, the notion that we're running out of any of these things is ridiculous. What we're really suffering from is inflation. That's the real issue. I want to bring up another quick thing and then we'll postpone the rest of the conversation to another episode. But you take a position that's a little bit controversial, even among Austrians, but I'm not sure how fully Austrian the Austrians involved are. But that has to do with, in your discussion of labor, the question of whether involuntary unemployment is possible on the free market. And you say no. And I remember there was a public debate about this. I mean, I'm just kind of a back and forth blog style debate where one side was saying, look, Mises says this clearly, that if you understand the terms correctly, there is no such thing as on a purely free market involuntary unemployment. And the other person, I won't name his name because I'm too nice of a person. The other person said, Mises never said that. So the first debater produced the passage, said, here you go, here's Mises saying it. And then the other person shifted the goalposts and said, oh, now you're going to believe something just because somebody says it? Well, the point was you were denying that he said it. So therefore, I produced the passage. You know, I mean, it was just dumb. But what do you actually mean by that? And what would be the difference between unemployment on a free market and unemployment under statism? The two main ways in which unemployment is created are monetary policy and minimum wage laws. Those two things are what produce unemployment realistically, because in the absence of those two things, we live in a world in which prices are constantly declining. So everything becomes more and more affordable over time and in which everybody has the freedom to work when they want to or when they don't want to. And so in that world, it makes no sense to talk about unemployment as if it is this massive problem. What we have is people who just don't want to work. And that's a perfectly normal and healthy thing. Nobody works all of their life every day, every hour. People need to sleep, need to eat, to have a family, need to perhaps even have some leisure if they're lucky enough. And there are times in people's lives when it doesn't make sense to work. You know, you want to take a break, you want to focus on something else, you want to retire, you want to stay at home, take care of the kids. These things are common. And so it's just a simple market decision. And, you know, choosing to sell your labor is no different than choosing to buy apples or sell apples. It's just another economic good. And so on a free market, Maybe these are the prices that are being offered for me to work at this point. This is the skill set that I have. This is what people want to pay for me. Well, if at that price, I don't want to work. Well, this is not involuntary unemployment. I just don't want to work at this price. I don't have a right to force people to pay me what I think I am worth. I can only ask them to pay me what they think I am worth. And so this notion that I have a claim to society that owes me a certain salary because that's how special I think I am is I think the root of the problem. The problem is that that's the absurdity of the definition on a free market. Now in the statist world, the reason we get unemployment is a minimum wage laws, which make it so that it's not possible for some people who want to work to get 
employment at the productivity that works for them because their productivity is considered essentially illegal. It's a level of productivity that's illegal to work at. So you're able to contribute to my business at $10 an hour, and I'm happy to pay you those $10 an hour, but there's a law that says I can only pay you $15 an hour. So in that case, yeah, you would be involuntarily unemployed because I would get into trouble with the law if I were to employ you at the rate that works for us. And of course, the long-term implication of this is not just that you're not working today. The real problem is that the only way for you to get your productivity up from 10 to 15 is to get a job. It's to get a job, turn up, figure out what we do in this work and start getting better at it and then raise your productivity. The thing that I think is very telling is pretty much every single job out there starts off under the minimum wage. If you look at doctors, you look at engineers, you look at the most high paid jobs, lawyers or even CEOs and executives, what was their first job? Well, their first job was an internship. When you finish med school, you go and you work and you do a residency and you're getting paid less per hour than the janitor in the hospital. I know my brother was a resident and he was getting paid less than the janitor. He was getting paid less than the minimum wage. If you count all the time that he needs to spend studying to keep up with what's going on in his residency, it's really not a good bargain. If you look at engineers, they start off with unpaid internships many times. They might do them in college or they might do them right after college. Same is true for lawyers, all these kinds of jobs. When you start at a job, when you haven't worked, when your job experience is zero, your productivity is approximately zero. So it's asking a big ask of an employer to take you on and offer you a full salary. It's probably, I mean, the fact that they're just having you on when you have a low productivity is itself a very kind thing of them to do. That's not really kind. They're doing it on the hope that you will develop into a valuable worker that they can then hire you. But that's how it is for all jobs. You start off with very low productivity and then you learn on the job and you work your way up. And what minimum wage laws do is they make that illegal for low-skilled jobs. So nobody's out there saying, hey, you know what? Doctors and lawyers and engineers, you should not be allowed to do unpaid internship. Well, now they are actually. <laughs> Crazy people are still trying to get that canceled now because these are the times we live in. But generally, most people, when they talk about exploitation of workers, they think of low-wage workers. And so effectively, they're just banning these people from acquiring the skills. But then the second way in which government creates unemployment is monetary policy and business cycles. And so when you create the boom, you create malinvestments in certain sections of the economy. And so there's artificial demand for a particular job. And so more and more people go into this job, say, for instance, like in the US, it was housing in 2007 or all kinds of different sectors of the economy in which people start acquiring skills to get into this section. And then they, when the bubble bursts, all of these jobs are eliminated and the demand for these jobs is eliminated. And now you have a very large number of people that are essentially unemployable because they don't have good skills that can be transferred to other parts of the economic system. And so it's distortions of the market that create this idea. On the free market, anyone is free to work at whatever price they want and whatever wage they want. And so the notion that somebody is unemployed seems not possible in my opinion. One thing that makes your book different from others on this subject, or let's say other major Austrian treatises, is a couple of chapters you have in there that you do not find in these other treatises. You have a chapter specifically on technology and another chapter specifically on energy. And those stood out to me because, as I say, you don't see that in Man, Economy, and State, for example, or Human Action. But you make a good case, certainly when you talk about energy, especially in a day and age when the sources of energy that we might normally want to rely on are being demonized and we're being urged to substitute inferior sources of energy. So it's important to understand energy, its significance, and what the economics of energy is all about. So can you, in your own words, explain why a chapter on energy in particular belongs in a general treatise? The case that I would make for this is that the economics of energy are an inseparable part of our economic decision-making, and that if you really want to understand how capitalism became possible, if you want to understand the true power of capitalism and the real contribution that it has provided us, 
I think perhaps the most powerful way of doing so is to look at the amount of energy that human beings are able to consume because of the capitalist economic system. I mean, obviously, all economics textbooks will provide you with some more kind of subjective measures of the improvement of quality of life. Well, not necessarily subjective. There are some that are objective as well. So improvements in life expectancy, child mortality, prevalence of diseases, all of these things have improved markedly because of the market economy and because of capitalist advancement. But I think perhaps the most powerful way of explaining that is to think of how much capitalism has allowed us to consume energy. And I believe there are several very important implications of thinking about it this way. So the first one is, historically, all humans had access to their own body's energy. And then if you wanted more energy to be dedicated toward meeting your own ends, you had very little choices. You could get a horse, you could get a cow, but these were very expensive. They required a lot of energy invested in them and in their upkeep and in their maintenance. And of course, another option was to get another human being and enslave them and make them your slave. So for the vast majority of human history, all of humanity had access to meet its own goals using only its own body's energy. So about 2,000 calories a day or something like that. This is all that you had to ensure your survival. This is how you could grow your food. This is how you could keep yourself warm, fight off predators, hunt your own food. All of that you could do it with your own hands and what your hands and feet and your brain could produce with the calories that you could consume every day. And that was it. And a very, very, very tiny, small number of people throughout human history had access to other people's labor in the form of slavery. So if you happen to be a king 5,000 years ago or 1,000 years ago, you had an army of slaves around you who worked around you and allowed you to live a much better life than everybody else because they spent maybe half of their body's energy serving you rather than serving themselves. So they'd go and cut down wood to keep you warm at winter, boil water with that wood and bring it to you so that you could take a hot shower or a hot bath and hunt animals from you, protect you from animals. So slavery was, of course, an extremely valuable thing. And I think it's a very powerful way of understanding the benefits of capitalism to understand that what it has done to us now is that the average American today has the equivalent of the power of 200 slaves at his disposal every day. You know, if you think about how much energy your car, your heating system at home, your electronic devices, how much energy those things consume, it's the equivalent roughly for the average American of 200 human beings. So it's like you've got 200 slaves working for you to meet those things, but you don't have any actual slaves. All of their energy is put into these remarkable, miraculous energy sources we call hydrocarbon fuels, which are highly compact, highly packed with energy and very mobile and very easy to move around to where we need them. And so this, I think, is a very powerful way of explaining how capitalism advances our life. And it's a very powerful way of explaining how we economize, because this is truly one very important way in which we economize. We think about how to move our energy in the most effective way in order to meet our subjective needs. And perhaps a slightly original contribution that I make here, maybe not slightly, perhaps I mean, I'll just go ahead and say, an original contribution I bring in here is to apply the analysis, the marginal analysis of the Austrians, of Menger, to energy in a way that I believe is extremely consequential for understanding energy markets today, which I do not believe I've seen somebody else do it. And the idea here is specifically that I argue against the use of the term energy market, which being a hypocrite, I just used a few seconds ago, we don't really sell or buy energy. We sell and buy power. And there's a distinction between those two terms. Energy, incidentally, of course, is a difficult thing to define and physicists have a hard time coming up with a definition of energy. But energy is this thing that allows you to do work or transfer heat. So you can act on things, you can move them around, you can lift them, or you can heat them up. That's what energy does. And it's not really true to say that we have markets for energy because energy is abundant and it is not scarce and it is available in infinite quantities at all, not all times and places, but it's available in infinite quantities practically for us as human beings. The amount of energy that the sun gives to earth in a day is more than what humanity consumes in an entire year. So there's sunshine all day, every day, everywhere. And 
Then there's also all the massive amounts of hydrocarbon fuels underground, which are hundreds of times, just the proven reserves that we have are roughly hundreds of times of all of the energy that we consume today. And then you've got all the nuclear fuels, which are many, many infinite multiples of the amount of energy that we consume today. And then you have the wind and you have the running water and tidal energy and geothermal energy. So there's an infinity practically of energy sources, but that's not what we're buying and selling. And there's a great quote from Mises, which I mentioned in the earlier chapter on marginalism, where he says, when trying to understand the water diamond paradox, why is it that water is cheap, whereas diamonds are expensive? And Mises says, nobody ever has to make a choice between all of the world's gold or all of the world's iron. And so that's why iron is cheaper than gold, even though iron has what may appear to be more essential functions, infrastructure and houses, whereas gold is mostly jewelry and decoration. And yet gold is much more expensive because these decisions of valuation are taken at the margin. So as an individual, you decide to value things at the margin, at the time and the place where you're buying them. And so that's why water is cheap, whereas diamonds are expensive. Because in modern society, modern human society is built around the abundance of water. We go to places where there's a lot of water. We build a lot of infrastructure to make water plentiful. And in that setting, a marginal extra unit of water is at most times and places for most people practically worth very little because there's an abundance of water elsewhere. And so, you know, if I don't buy it from your supermarket, I can just walk another five meters or 50 meters and get to the other supermarket and buy water from there. But if I were on a deserted island where I had no access to water at all, in that kind of situation, yeah, then water would be a lot more valuable than diamonds. So valuation happens at the margin. And that, I think, is something that's missing from most analysis of energy. Most analysis of energy will look at energy in terms of the aggregate. So people will tell you, well, we're building a solar plant that has a capacity of this much energy. That's nonsense. It doesn't matter what the total capacity, the total quantity of energy it produces is. What matters is the marginal value of the energy to the person using it at the time and the place that they use it. And so the tricky part of energy is not the abundance of energy. It's not making more energy. We have infinite amounts of energy surrounding us at all times. The tricky part is taking that energy and transforming it into power, which the definition of power is energy divided by unit of time. It's how much energy you're able to direct per second or per minute to meet a specific job. And so it doesn't matter how much sun shines on my hometown today. When I want to drive my car, I need to have a certain amount of power get into the wheels so that the car can move so that they get me from one place to the other. And so that's the good that we're buying. We're buying power. We're not buying energy. And I think this Austrian way of understanding energy is what people need to understand in order to essentially quit with the insanity of thinking that we can have modern industrial civilization while using pre-industrial technologies of wind and sunshine. Because the only reason we can have modern industrialization is because we have high power and because we are able to direct large quantities of energy at the margin, at the time and place where we want them to be so that we can have the machines that we have do the things that we want them to do. We want to be able to drive our car, turn on the light, run an incubator for a premature baby at a hospital at the time that the premature baby is born and at all times that they need them, not have the premature baby sit in an incubator that only works when the sun shines or the wind blows. And so it's immaterial what the total aggregate quantities of these things are. What truly matters is our ability to deliver large quantities of power. And so for that, you can see why hydrocarbons are so essential and so important and so really inextricably linked to capitalist civilization, because they're the only way that we can, well, not the only way perhaps, but you know, they're the most effective way that we have for delivering large quantities of power on demand at the margin and the time and the place where we want them. So you can take oil to any godforsaken place on earth, any of the most isolated spots on earth. You could take oil, take an engine, 
and you've got giant amounts of energy to move things around or to light things up or to have electricity or whatever it is that you'd want. You can take oil and gas and coal. You can move them around. They're very cheap to move around relatively. They're relatively stable in containers. And so you can get them to places where you want them and then you can have that power on demand. And that's the problem with wind and solar. Why wind and solar don't do that is because you're basically hostage to the weather. And so you can't just have the high quantities of power that you want on demand. If you want to live on those things, we can't run the refrigerator at night. We can't have light if the wind is not blowing at night. So all of these things are impossible to get around in the case of wind and solar because there's just no way of having them produce large amounts of power. And of, well, there is a way of doing it, which is batteries, but that just increases the cost by somewhere between 10 to 100x of the power that you want to produce. And so that's, in my mind, that's really the kill shot. That's the real economic reason why wind and solar are extremely idiotic ideas that are only going to succeed in destroying our ability to live modern civilized life. They are not alternatives to hydrocarbons. They are alternatives to civilization. They are just ways of taking us back to darkness and cold and a precarious survival because they don't allow us power at the margin at the time that we want it. So that's why I think this fits into an Austrian textbook because it's really only the Austrian marginal analysis that helps us understand this. And it's not something that you see mentioned in books discussing energy and power in general. I have so many things I want to bring up here from your book. There could be the discussion of whether labor is exploitation. There could be discussions of what are the consequences of what you call the denigration and vilification of capital ownership by people like Marx and Keynes. But I think I'm going to choose this one just because our friend Gene Epstein, who hosts a debate series in New York City, was himself one of the debaters a couple of weeks ago in a general debate on libertarianism. And the other side laid out the case for why libertarians are all full of it. And part of the presentation was, you see, we have these things called externalities. And libertarians, I don't know, apparently must be unaware that we have externalities. I'm not exactly sure where this was going. Obviously, we've written about externalities, but these are things that can't be priced by the market. So we have areas of life where resources can't be allocated rationally. And so there we do need to have political interference and political allocation of things. And there are both positive and negative externalities. And we have something called public goods. Now, you have some discussion of this. And I wonder, because I'm just tired of being told that we've never thought of this. No, I think it's more that you haven't bothered to read what we've said about it. We have thought about it. Yes. How could we not, you know? Exactly. I mean, I've also been told this by a lot of people. And a lot of people who might even be quite sympathetic to Austrian ideas. I think a lot of people in the banking industry or people who are interested in economics, they come across the Austrians. They are fascinated by the superior ability to explain economic phenomenon, understanding inflation, understanding money, understanding the business cycle. And then they just assume that Austrians are, you know, your run-of-the-mill Harvard slash Chicago economists. And so therefore, they immediately assume that, well, obviously, these guys are economists, so obviously, they're not going to have anything to say about important things like politics and governments and what governments should do and policies and externalities and public goods and national defense and security. All of the money stuff is okay for these Austrian children to play with. But when it comes to that serious stuff, then you need the mass murderers, basically, and you need to have legitimate excuses for mass murder and taking people's stuff. And obviously, all of these Austrians are completely clueless. So the last section of the book, so as I said, I worked my way up earlier explaining what was going on in the first four sections. So the market order is the fourth section. And then the fifth section is the monetary economics. We discuss time preference, interest rates, um, the business cycle from the Austrian perspective. And then in the final section, I termed that section civilization and I discuss defense and violence and civilization as the product of essentially a society in which people accept the premise of property rights, accept the sanctity of property rights and don't violate each other's rights and therefore because of that, we get to live in an extended order where you can trade with others, where you can peacefully accumulate capital, where you have a certain amount of confidence in your ability to maintain your property. And that's what gives us civilization. And so 
I hope a lot of people read this, particularly people who think of themselves as critics of Austrian economics, but in reality are just very, very astute critics of their own ability to read because they tell you, you know, well, Austrians have no answer for violence. Well, what happens if somebody doesn't want to be a libertarian? What happens if somebody doesn't want to abide by the non-aggression principle? I think the predominant idea, and I see this a lot, I see it's a very common misconception. I see it among many Bitcoiners who get into Bitcoin for various reasons, then get to learn about Austrian economics. And then their conclusion is, well, this is, sounds nice in practice, but obviously libertarianism can't work because we live in a world of animals and a lot of people are animals and a lot of people don't want to abide by these things. And it's funny to me because they seem to think that libertarianism means let's just keep asking everybody to be polite and nice and then we'll get to live in civilization. And for them, this seems obviously ridiculous and unworkable. And therefore, the only alternative is that we need to have a violent monopoly on power that gets to kill and take the property of everybody. Because that's the only way that you can have a system in which we have private property is to have one authority, one body, one monopoly agency that can take away everybody's stuff, which is obviously a contradiction in terms, because the whole idea of having property is that you get to keep your property. And so if you're saying that we need to have an entity that can just violate property rights in order to maintain property rights, you clearly haven't thought this through, which is what statism ultimately is. So in this book, I go, I use Rothbard's power and market. I use Hoppe's myth of national defense and democracy God that failed. And Edward Stringham's also, his excellent book, Private Governance. And I just argue that, look, I make the case that, look, this isn't something that is unknown to Austrians. Austrians aren't innocent little children. And they're also not pacifists. I think this is a key point. There's a distinction between pacifism and libertarianism. Pacifism means you don't engage in violence, full stop. Libertarianism is not pacifism. It doesn't mean you don't engage in violence. It means you don't initiate against peaceful people. But it doesn't mean you can't defend yourself against people who initiate violence. So that defense against aggression is just another market good. And there's no reason why it should be any different from all the other market goods. And so I try to systematically go through all of the justifications that are given for why this one particular good is different and that the only way that we can manage that particular good effectively is to have a violent monopoly that is able to provide it essentially by violating it. We can have security by letting a bunch of people have the ability to destroy our security whenever they want. And then once every four years, we get to replace them with a new group of sociopaths who can violate our security whenever they want. And so, and again, this is thanks to the foundation that I lay in the first few chapters of understanding what is a good, what gives things value. Menger says that what gives things value is something is scarce and it has utility. Those are the two things that give economic value. So defense from aggression is just another market good because it has value, because it has utility. You obviously prefer to not be robbed and assaulted and murdered. So there's utility to somebody who protects you from that stuff. And there's scarcity to it because there's an infinite amount of potential threats and there's a finite amount of resources you can dedicate to your defense security. So what we have here is just another economic good. So then how is this economic good provided? And I think the very powerful idea here for people to consider is that we already live in a world in which we have a free market in security. Defense from aggression is a free market. And so the most startling stat here is that there's probably about twice as many private security guards in the world than there are policemen in the world. And this makes a lot of sense. You know, if you walk around in your local town, you'll see that your bank doesn't rely on police to keep it safe. They have their own security. And this isn't a slight against police in as much as it is just normal. Why should I, as a taxpayer, pay for a policeman to provide you and your bank with security for when you go there? It seems to me like it's just much more fair that I pay for my own security with my own bank. My bank pays for their own security. Your bank pays for their own security. And everybody pays for their own security because ultimately security is a good and it is provided at the margin. Again, we go back to marginal analysis. So in the statist imagination, 
Security is a switch, and you need a government to flip that switch to say, all right, no more crimes, no more theft, no more bad things. All the bad things are from now on illegal. And then there's security blanketing our society. Nothing is like that. There is no switch. It's not an on-off switch. Just like we were saying earlier with water and diamond or with iron and gold or with energy, nobody ever has a choice to make between full security and full insecurity or having all the gold in the world or having zero of the gold in the world. That's never a choice that anybody has to make. The choices are not made in the aggregate. The choices are made in the, at the margin. Who's going to get the next policeman? Should we hire an extra policeman? How many police does your house get? your street, your neighborhood? Should you get a private bodyguard? Who should pay for it? We go back to the economic calculation problem. It's an economic calculation problem. And the only way to solve this is through private calculation. That's really Mises' enormously powerful insight, is that the only way to allocate resources efficiently is through having property rights and having people perform economic calculation. And so that's obviously why private security is more and more important than police, because there's no rational way of allocating police because police as an economic good is not owned privately. And therefore, there's no way of performing rational economic calculation on the best ways of choosing this. And so we do have a free market in security. And in fact, as Rothbard says, it's better to think of the police and the state's security apparatus as being out there to protect the state. They're out there to protect the state rather than you. And as Rothbard says it, you know, just compare the vigor with which the government goes after crimes against the state versus crimes against citizens. Or to extend that even more, compare how they prosecute state crimes against citizens versus citizen crimes against the state. I think this tells you all you need to know about what the police is there for. And that really your security is primarily in your own hands. So whether you buy your own gun or you hire private security guards, you are the one who can secure yourself. And in fact, again, with the weapons industry, again, we see that the weapons industry is predominantly private companies that are producing the weapons. And they are private companies that operate in the free market. And so once you get past the status propaganda, which is essentially economic illiteracy, this idea that we need to flick a switch so that we have full security for everybody, you realize security is just another economic good. Everything from alarm bells to locks to guns to weapons to all forms of security guards, all of these things are economic goods. And increasingly, more and more and more people are coming to treat them as economic goods because economic rationality prevails and economic rationality leads people to act in a way that is in their self-interest. And so... These are not things that Austrians haven't thought through. These are things that just people don't like to read because they have been very heavily propagandized with Keynesian and statist ideas. And so the conclusion from this, when I look at the market for defense and the market for protection, is that ultimately what we have is with current governments and the enormous amount of power that they have over people's lives, we've got to a point in which the real threat to people's security and well-being is exactly the government. If you look at most of the world today, the vast majority of people are suffering from the problem of government. Government is robbing you directly through taxation. It's robbing you indirectly through inflation. It's robbing you indirectly by taking so much of your money to provide you with security that is completely dysfunctional. The U.S. government spends trillions of dollars on security. And, you know, they have military bases in Korea and in Qatar and in Africa and in Latin America and all over the world. And yet children in Chicago can't walk to their local grocery store to buy groceries because Chicago is like a war zone. So imagine if all the money that you as a citizen of Chicago all the money that gets taken from you in taxes and inflation and all other creative ways in which the government robs you. Imagine if you had all of that money for yourself and you could spend it on security yourself. I mean, you could give every single person in Chicago a private bodyguard with the money that the state takes from them. Half of the population of Chicago would be employed as bodyguards for the other half of the population and everybody would be a lot more secure. So 
the real challenge, and this is the point of the final chapter, is that if we are to have civilization, obviously I'm not doing it justice here, it's a lot more complex of an argument, but really what we want as a society is to have civilization, is to have a world in which we are able to give our children a life better than our life. And in order to do that, we need to have the freedom to accumulate capital, the freedom and security to be able to maintain that capital for the long term. And in order to do that, the biggest threat we face currently, I believe, is governments. And I believe there's a lot of reasons to be upset and depressed about how much more power governments have. And I you know, go through these. In the final chapter, I go through how government money in particular, fiat money, destroys and undermines every single one of the methods of economizing that I had discussed in the previous chapters. So the book is about 18 chapters. It's 18 chapters. And in chapter 18, I go through chapters 3 to 17 and show how having money in the hand of the state and having a monopoly of violence in the hands of the state undermines every single one. It undermines our ability to work. It undermines labor markets. It undermines our ability to maintain our property. It undermines our ability to accumulate capital, to trade. It undermines our ability to have money as a market good. It undermines capitalism. It undermines economic calculation. And I go through these one by one and it creates the business cycle and so on. So there's plenty to be depressed about. But there's also a very optimistic conclusion to the book and a very optimistic thread throughout the book, which is that throughout the book, what the book is, is the triumph of reason. The book is well, we face this problem and then we figure out, hey, if we accumulate capital, like Robinson Crusoe is starving and he's hunting. So he labor is a way that he gets over the adversity because he uses his reason and he realizes those rabbits are delicious. So he catches the rabbits and he eats them and he lives another day. And then he uses reason to come up with spear that will protect him from predators. And then he invents a capital good that hunts and produces more rabbits per hour of work. And so all along, we find that human reason continues to triumph. And capitalism is essentially a bounty program for human reason to solve our human problems. And that's what allows me to end on the positive note, which is that all of these problems are the problems caused by money, by government money. And so the more intense those problems, the bigger the reward for finding a solution for them and the more successful a potential solution is. And that is what I believe Bitcoin is. Bitcoin is the market's solution to this current threat that human civilization faces. You know, it used to be lions and bears and other barbaric tribes and people who don't respect our property. And it used to be nature and all kinds of things that have faced us as threats throughout history. And we found a way around them. Obviously, a lot of them, they've killed a lot of people, those threats, but we've found a way around them because of our reason. And I believe Bitcoin is how we're finding a way around this cancer that is government money that is truly tearing apart the fabric of human civilization. I would like to end on that note because it's such a climactic moment, but I just can't help. I want to ask you one more thing. And I would love to, by the way, pepper you with follow-up questions. And if I were Joe Rogan and we had three hours, I would. But I've got a bunch of things written down. There's one more I want to ask you about. It's just a heading that you have on page 236. And I just feel like there's interesting Austrian wisdom tied up in it. And it's simply this. Capitalism is entrepreneurial, not managerial. Now, what do you mean by that? And why is that important? Yeah, I think this is a very important point that Mises emphasizes. And I think Per Belund as well likes to always keep banging on this point on Twitter. I'd say I put it in there for him because he's always reminding me of it. I think it's a very powerful point and it's very important. It's one of the many, many, many things that socialists get wrong about economics. Well, everything they get wrong about economics, it's not very special about it. But it's this idea that for many of the socialists, they think the economic problem is just about managing to allocate the resources that currently exist in a way that works, which to an extent, obviously it is, that is a problem. But that could be a solvable problem in a static situation. So today we live in a capitalist economy and this is how economic production is organized. Well, if we turned it into a socialist economy and we just had a government entity take over all the capital, we can keep everything as it is. 
you keep your job and you keep your pay. I keep my job. I keep my pay. And we just keep turning up. But instead of all of us working for the 10 fat cat capitalists that own the entire country, we now work for the one fat cat government that owns everything instead of the 10 capitalists. And then nothing changes, right? In fact, because it's the government, as the government is made out of angels, as opposed to evil capitalists, as we all know, that the government can, of course, just allocate those resources better because it cares about fairness. So instead of the rich people getting to have a fifth villa, we take the money from the fifth villa and hand it out to thousands of poor people who get to have food for a month or something like that. And so this means better economic allocation. But the problem is that this completely ignores the idea of entrepreneurship, which is something that not only the socialists don't get, but it's also, you know, mainstream economists don't have any conception of entrepreneurship because it doesn't fit into their models because their models cannot accommodate an entrepreneur who basically shows up and tears the model apart. An entrepreneur shows up and says, you know what? No, no more typewriters, no more typewriter factory, no more typists as a job. We're scrapping all of that and we're doing personal computers and printers from now on. That's what entrepreneurship is. And it's highly destructive. Uh, well, not destructive, disruptive, I should say. It's highly disruptive and it changes things and it creates a new world. And the real insurmountable problem for socialism is how to calculate for a future that has never existed before. It's much more difficult than calculating for the future that has existed. You know, let's just keep everything as it is. Well, what do we do when somebody invents something new? How do we invent something new? How do we live in a world in which new things are invented? And socialism has no answer for that. Well, having gone through this, let's say, whirlwind tour, and it's, you know, I feel like I'm trying to give people, I don't know, like a tour of Vienna in 15 minutes. And it's interesting that I chose Vienna as my random city. I guess that's appropriate. But there's so much in here. And I wrote down so much stuff while I was reading it. It's fantastic. It's so important. And especially, there are a lot of people out there who are not economists, let's say, by profession, but who, who know some economics, but maybe have some gaps in their knowledge or they never really learned it systematically and they feel like they'd probably have to go through some big, long curriculum to do it. If you read Principles of Economics by SAFE here, you're going you're gonna to have the knowledge you need. As a layman, more than the knowledge you need. And it's explained in a way that you will find instantly comprehensible, but not simplistic. It strikes a perfect balance. And I generally have complimentary words to say about books whose authors I feature on this show, because why would I have an author on who has written a bad book? I wouldn't waste my time. But I'm not usually this effusive in my praise. So that means you really should go get it. So number one, it'll be available at tomwoods.com slash 2351, our show notes page for today. You can also get it, I'm sure, from the usual online sellers. But no doubt you can also get, can I assume people can order, at least there are links to order, at saifedean.com, S-A-I-F-E-D-E-A-N.com? Yes, absolutely. You can order directly from my website. We fulfill to the whole world, basically. And yeah, you can also buy from most regular booksellers. Excellent. So please go do that. This is a fantastic and very, very much needed piece of work. So well done. And it must have been so extraordinarily satisfying to put that last finishing touch on it after all that work. So congratulations and thanks again. Thank you so much, Tom. I really can't tell you how thankful I am for all your kind words and for having me on your show again. It really means a lot. Thank you so much. <laughs>